Hello, and welcome back to Hanging Out with the Dream King, a Neil Gaiman podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Helt. In this episode, we'll be discussing the last days of the Justice Society of America. This is a 1986 one-shot, 68 pages special, no ads. Uh, the creative team on this one was Roy Thomas as writer slash editor, uh, David Ross as pencils, uh, Mike Gustavich inker, uh, Dan Thomas co-plotter, David Cody Weiss as letter, and Carl Gafford as colorist. So just to refresh listeners about why we are covering a DC Comics one-shot from the 80s about characters who had their heyday decades before that. Uh, Stop, Glenn. I think you've just explained it. (laughs) I think we're done. So let's jump right into it. Now, okay. I guess we'll come up with other excuses in case Brandon is like, why are you spending your time on this? Yeah, yeah. We are doing this. Uh, We are covering this story because it shows up in Season of Mist. This is what is happening in... In the snow globe that Odin has, the snow globe that he is offering to dream in exchange for the deed to hell. So we will keep that in mind uh, as, as we go, and then we will certainly also bring it up as a, a discussion point in the end. And the story here, it begins in April 1945 in Berlin. It is the last days of the European theater, at least, of the Second World War. And we are in Hitler's bunker. And what matters here is that Hitler is thinking about some special ability that he has that will allow him to destroy the entire planet if the tide of the war doesn't turn in his favor very quickly. Now, we cut away from this, but, uh, you know, he's going to use that. He's going to you know, do that. That's what the plot is going to be. But that's all really a teaser. And now we journey to the present, which is to say the 1980s, so that we can join the Justice Society for a funeral. It is a double funeral, really, and the Justice Society is eulogizing Dick Grayson and Helena Wayne, which is to say Robin and the Huntress. But this eulogy, and this this is delivered by Hawkman, by the way, this eulogy is really an opportunity for Thomas, the writer, to make sure that we, the readers, all have the backstory about the Justice Society and the crisis on infinite Earths. And Brent, I'm just going to let you give us that backstory and uh, maybe start by telling us about the crisis on infinite Earths, which I know you have presented this to listeners before, but um, well, certainly I need a refresher and someone else probably does too. And then we can talk more specifically about the Justice Society. Yeah, the crisis on infinite Earths. So there have been many, many, many crises that DC does. It feels like they almost do it yearly now, probably too much. Um, But crisis on infinite Earths was the first and in some ways the greatest. Um, And it was an attempt in the mid 80s. on the so uh, the meta text for all this is that the DC editorial staff said, uh, let's create one consistent continuity. Let's quit dealing with the fact that we've set up this uh, scenario up to this point where there is a multiverse where there are different Earths. There's Earth one and Earth two and Earth prime, which is not Earth one and Earth three and Earth 47 and blah, blah, blah. Marvel's got its own version of this, too. It's basically where you can say, OK, well, there's these other characters and those stories do happen in continuity, but it's a different world. And the fun that they've had in the past, uh, which started 
with the Silver Age Flash and uh, Flash of Two Worlds is that uh, the Flashes, Jay Garrick, uh, who we see a lot in this Justice Society of America comic, um, and Barry Allen figured out how to traverse between the different Earths. So then there was a yearly crossover between the Justice Society of America and the Justice League of America, um, and fun would ensue. But DC decided, let's try to streamline things and also have a big line wide thing where we try to clean up the timeline um, and get rid of excess worlds. And so what they did was the there was an anti monitor who uh, was rising to destroy all of time and space like you do, you know, because it's you know, Wednesday. Uh, and that's your, <laughs> that is your reason for existing. So you might as well implement it. Um, which I don't know if that's your reason for existing. I feel like there's a lot of good TV, particularly if time and space don't mean things to you. You just got to wait a couple of years and there's some really good TV. Um, next generation is going to start soon. Like he should just catch that <laughs> before. Like why? Anyways. So, um, there's climatic battles and we get to see heroes from across these worlds interact. So the justice society of America heroes, which we largely spend this comic with, um, when we're not following, a. a dirty stinking Nazis. Uh, they exist in uh, Earth 2. So they're the original heroes that were in the DC and the predecessor companies who owned them lines starting in like the 40s, including uh, Superman and Batman, but also Hawkman, uh, Green Lantern. All of these names will sound familiar. And for those of you who are less familiar with the continuity thing, you'll be like... I know Superman. Superman's always the same. It's just like, no, no, this is the Superman who kept aging from the 40s and the Batman who kept aging in the 40s. And in that universe, Batman married Catwoman and they had a daughter and their daughter was Huntress as opposed to what we think of normal continuity now where Batman uh, uh, daughter is not Huntress. Uh, I don't think he has a daughter, but I don't know. might change by the time you hear this between me <laughs> recording it because if we don't release within 60 seconds, who knows? But um, uh, so there's a lot of continuity to clean up. Um, and so there was a world ending catastrophe and the heroes succeeded uh, eventually, but many people died in the process, um, including as they referenced, they lost um, you know, the golden age Superman, the golden age Batman, um, and now the golden age Robin and Huntress. Um, but these are kind of the lingers where just like these just societies don't have parallels, so they still exist, but the editorial staff decided Roy Thomas, uh, editor and also writer of this one went to the other editorial staff and said, we need to do a final episode for just society of America. Now, for those who like the justice society, readers who are new to this don't worry uh they do come back later and there have been a number of great runs that they've had uh since 86 but at the time this was supposed to be the swan song of the justice society to explain literally what happened to them with the people who were not killed on screen in the 12 part maxi series crisis on infinite earths so that's probably both too much and not enough information for you, Glenn. But what are your questions now? <laughs> no, that was perfect for, for me. I mean, I have actually read this, which I, I assume will not be the case with most people listening. But hopefully that was enough to to really get us going here, you know, to to proceed with the, the plot, right? And I think that is a pretty good amount of backstory there to understand what's going on, right? So we've got these Justice Society characters who are gathered for this funeral, but- 
you know, that itself, that's not the plot of this issue. We need some kind of inciting incident to actually propel us into the story that is going to, you know, end up being what is going on in Odin's snow globe. And that inciting incident is the appearance of the Spectre. This is a, well, it's the name of a character, the Spectre. But uh, (laughs) Brent, again, who is this character? Who is the Spectre? Ah, the Spectre. So the Spectre is, um, originally he was uh, Jim Corrigan's Spectre. Um, And Jim Corrigan uh, was killed. Uh, He was a cop who was, you know, trying to deal with crime. And uh, he got put in a cement barrel and thrown in uh, the river or a lake. Um, And that usually doesn't go well for uh, you, um, but uh, God or whatever unnamed magical force above everything. Um, but essentially, the DC monotheistic God creature said, no, no, uh, I need you to go back. And as long as they're a crime, I need you to fight. And Jim Corkin said, I don't can I rest? I'm, I'm tired and dead. Um, and, uh, okay, well you can, but then you're not going to be able to have the powers I'm going to give you to save your fiance up. Oh, nope. I actually care about my saving my fiance, even though I can't be with her. So, um, the specter then became a costumed golden age superhero who fought crime and the good old, you know, kind of slightly punched them up, but also supernatural power. So sometimes really big and sometimes passing through walls and whatever, uh, over time that has morphed in a lot of ways in which sometimes the specter is, uh, an angel who took sides or didn't take sides with the battle between heaven and hell, or maybe this is just actually the angel performing their duty and whatever. But the idea is that the essence of the specter is some kind of a metaphysical thing within the DC universe that is super powerful, but has to be physically connected to a human host of some kind. So Jim Corgan was that for a lot of the reign, uh, later, uh, Hal Jordan, who was the silver age green lantern, um, actually had the specter attached to him, um, which was good when, he was good and bad when he was crazy, but that's kind of the specter is kind of the scale, the power to what you need to fit the situation, almost Superman kind of problems, but with more sight me magic stuff. And in magic in comics is, uh, not well defined. Uh, it is not what you will read from modern dungeons and dragons player's handbook where it's just like, Oh, I don't know that that's a really 30 foot radius. Like, Nope. Uh, this is just like, uh, whatever you need it to be is what it is for writing purposes. Uh, still lots of fun though, but, um, yeah. So Spectre, uh, was a member of the justice society of America, first of all, one of the founding members. And then also, uh, the Spectre, uh, as in some ways the most powerful being in the DC continuity at the time had a climactic batter battle with the anti-monitor that kind of ended the crisis. And he didn't actually beat the anti-monitor, but he did distract him long enough that the heroes could do all of the things they needed to do with MacGuffins to put in place to beat the anti-monitor, which again, beating him still meant the collapsing of hundreds of worlds into one and the loss of, you know, trillions of, um, beings, but you know, um, at least it wasn't the end of everything. So, uh, victory, but not satisfying. Um, like a pyric victory is what we would call that. But, uh, yeah, so that's the specter in a nutshell. Uh, I will mention that the specter, uh, you and I have touched on swamp thing recently. We have just fallen shy. I think where the swamp thing briefly has an appearance in the, the saga of the swamp thing that Alan Moore does in the Patreon feed. 
And also he makes a guest appearance in one of my favorite comics of all time, which we will probably cover at some point in the future, Neil Gaiman's four part prestige format books of magic, um, which is definitely where you've encountered him before Glenn, although I'm sure you've encountered him somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was the first place I ever encountered him. And of course, that is high, high, high up on our our list of things to do, I suppose, probably post Sandman, but who knows? But yeah, Books of Magic, huge, uh, huge favorite for both of us and something that we definitely are going to get to on the show. Yeah, so that's that's great background there, Brent, about who the specter is because he is here you know in this issue in this one shot really in this capacity as this numinous being who is connected to like the most central numinous power of the universe which is to say that he is here because he knows that something is going to destroy the entire universe and he needs to tell the jsa so they can stop it and then he dies, or at least his body dies. And the JSA is on their own, right? He just gave them the kind of basic information, and now it's up to them. And Dr. Fate, a member of the JSA, Dr. Fate, now shares with the rest of them a memory of 1945, as it did not actually happen, or at least not as they remember it happening. Because, of course, they are in our real timeline where the Allies won the war and then, you know, we got shopping malls. But something has happened to erase that past and replace it with one where Hitler used a magical artifact called the Spear of Destiny in order to destroy the entire universe. And this spear, the Spear of Destiny, this is the spear that pierced the side of Christ while he was dying on the cross. So it's a, you know, an artifact that Indiana Jones might have been called on to save from the Nazis. And actually, maybe that's what the plot of the fifth Indiana Jones movie is going to be that's coming out soon. But at any rate, so now that destruction is really happening and the JSA is going to have to stop it. We will get to that next. But I want to talk a little bit more about this flashback to April 1945, Brent, because the Justice Society heroes are there, but we're told that there is some magic, that's the word that's used, some magic that prevents most of them from actively engaging the German soldiers. And I'm hoping you can tell me more about this. Was this a real thing in comics as they were being published in the 40s during the war to explain why our caped superheroes aren't you know, winning the war for America? My understanding is that this is something that was come up with after the war. Um, I think it might even be something that was invented in the 70s. Um, but to retroactively explain why it was that you didn't have our heroes going and fighting there. Um, and it was that – so the the incontinuity, the the – as the comic presents it to us, uh, the spear of destiny um, would allow Hitler to take over and turn the mightiest heroes against the allies if they got too close to it. Um, and so they couldn't go and just, you know, you couldn't punch Hitler the way that you would everyone would want to all the time constantly if they had the option right and so this was the uh decision that was made retroactively like no, no it's the spear of destiny is the reason why um and it's the desire for you know the editorial staff and writers of comics to be like okay we want to make the world seem believable and basically be able to you know cherry pick some history but still largely say that the history that's being experienced is uh 
reflective of where the reader actually is, that there was, you know, World War II and there was Adolf Hitler um, and that he loved the occult or at least was vaguely interested in it, which depends on which biography you read, which one of those you get um, and which Indiana Jones film you're watching. So this was the kind of the the useful view of like how do you explain what the heroes were doing that you know they're they're letting these horrible things happen like why is it you know in a world where there is a holocaust how do you justify superman hanging out in metropolis the whole time right um and it's still something that then we don't have a similar macguffin today right for why you don't see superheroes going and dealing with modern day crises um you know, no one's going and punching Putin, right? Yeah, well, this makes sense to me, I guess, that it, that this is not something that was part of DC Comics publishing during the war itself, but that is from later because, you know, I think, yeah, it seems like during the war, and I can envision this because, as you've said, you know, how are we dealing with our own uh, geopolitical situations in comics is largely actually just to ignore them. And so I think that's what you do in this case as well. But then, yeah, you get a few decades later and realize, yes, the Second World War, uh, big deal, changed everything. World be- world after is not the same as the world before. So if we're going to pretend that it wasn't didn't happen, then our imaginary world where our comic book heroes are living is not the same world as the world of our readers, but we actually want it to be the same world that our readers are living in. So we need to come up with a reason why they, yeah, why Superman didn't just go put an end to Hitler and like stop this war completely, both theaters of it uh, immediately, because that's something that he could do. We have to have a reason why that didn't happen. And yeah, who knows? We may in another 10 or 20 years have, you know, this might enter continuity for DC and Marvel about, yeah, why Superman didn't end the war on terror or why, you know, Iron Man didn't. I guess actually in the MCU, they actually are grappling with some of that in some, uh, some sense. And I guess speaking of the MCU as well, right? The MCU also grapples with the Second World War. And maybe Marvel in general had a different approach to dealing with the Second World War than DC did. But one of the problems that we have with our superhero stories when we want to get them involved in the Second World War is that it, I think, and and here I am thinking about the first Captain America film mostly, is undermines then the real story of the actual war, right? It undermines the heroic things that real people did, the tragedies that befell real people. But also, in particular in that film, it made it seem like the war happened because of comic book supervillain stuff, and not because people themselves have the capacity to be evil. And that's something that deeply bothered me about that film. And so I think I am glad that you know comics, by and large, have come up with a reason why the superheroes just weren't involved in that story because world war two needs to be really world war two. Yeah. I, I agree with all that. I also agree or uh, additionally, you know, thinking of it from a writing perspective, which we like to do um, on this network. Um, if you introduce the idea contemporaneously of the spear of destiny, you're going to get a temptation to write stories about someone trying to steal the spear of destiny to stop, you know, to, to stop Hitler stopping heroes, to undo Hitler's ability to stop heroes. But then you don't want that actually to ever happen, which means you also need to have the heroes losing a lot in efforts to steal the Spear of Destiny. And particularly under the comics code, which we were operating under for part of this time, although not a lot of it, but still normal 
kind of approaches for most particularly, you know, capes and tights, uh, bright and flashy superhero stories, you, as opposed to the horror comics or other anthologies, you're wanting to tell stories that, uh, everyone will find acceptable for, uh, five-year-old Timmy and five-year-old Timmy, uh, can't read stories where the Nazis manage to repeatedly foil the heroes. So you need to have literally comic book villains who the heroes can beat and put into jail or Arkham or somewhere else and not have, oh no, the heroes need to just get this spear up. They failed to get the spear again. Shucks. It's just like, no, no, we're supposed to be rooting for the road runner, not the other way around. So, um, I think it just it, writing wise, it, it it it's a useful thing to introduce retroactively. Um, but yeah, that's the story of that. Yeah, um, no, I think it was a it was a good creative choice uh, all all around on both both fronts, as you're you're saying there, Brent. I, I agree completely. But as we'll see in the story, which I think is probably where you're going next, Glenn, uh, the spear has a whole bunch of effects that uh, Adolf Hitler, uh, crazy dumb loon. Uh, in comic and elsewhere, um, doesn't fully understand. Yeah. We, what, we, what happens next is that we learn that there is an ancient Germanic religious element to what is happening in this story. And we see that Hitler thinks that what he is doing is accessing an earlier magical world of that religion and that he is using the spear to begin the event known as uh, Gotterdammerung in German or Ragnarok in uh, Norse, uh, Old Norse. And then Dr. Fate, I will say, he calls this power rune magic. And What's happened is that Hitler has indeed begun the process of the end of the world, as it is described in the texts that we have about ancient Germanic religion, what we often call Norse mythology, certainly what Neil Gaiman calls Norse mythology. And this is happening on another world that the rune magic has created. But the fate of everything everywhere is going to be determined by what happens in this world. And it is indeed the world of Ragnarok, where we see the pantheon of Norse gods, such as Odin and Thor, battling a host of monsters. This includes figures, fairly famous figures, such as the wolf Fenrir and the fire giant Surtur. But the difference is that the Justice Society is here to help the gods and stave off the end of the world. And this battle, I mean, look, this battle is really the bulk of the story. It's like 25 pages of the story, but we are not going to recap the the details. But it is a lot of who would win in a fight type of storytelling here. But we will skip over those details and suffice it to say that, hey, the Justice Society and the gods prevail. But it turns out that at the end of the battle, this whole thing just resets. And the Justice Society is now trapped in this world, having to fight Ragnarok over and over again forever and ever. Uh, except for Dr. Fate. Dr. Fate gets out, shares this story with the new generation of heroes. And that's, you know, that's how we come to know about this. And of course, right, it is this endless battle that we encounter in Sandman. And let me just go back to Season of Mists here and actually read what Odin says so that we can, you know, try to, I don't know, square this up together. So this is Odin talking here in Season of Mists. Ragnarok. These days, too much of my time is spent hatching schemes to circumvent the darkness ahead of me and mine. 
I pick at it irrationally, as a man picks at a sore. Some years ago, it occurred to me that it is easier to fight something one knows something about. I created a world, a notional dimension, and in it, I fashioned a tiny Ragnarok. In my world, the last battle is fought day in, day out, forever. I have learned much from it. One thing that surprised me, though, was when my little world gained further warriors, ones I had not created. I do not know how they got there, nor why they fight these little mortal heroes. But look, they wore alongside my wee esser in the battle unending. And this will interest you, Dreamweaver. One of them has some of your essence in him. He is a vessel for a fraction of your soul. So what stands out to me here, Brent, is that Odin claims that he made this Ragnarok world, and he's not sure how the JSA capes got there. But as I said, I want to square this, right? How do we square that with what we've read in this story? Are we meant to understand that all of the world-ending stuff at the beginning of the story, all the stuff that uh, Dr. Fate and Spectre are worried about, that this is all just a consequence of Odin creating a notional dimension and that this thing we see Hitler do is just the kind of in-universe way to explain, to kind of create a backstory for how this happened, but that really how this is happening is that it's Odin in the Sandman world. Yeah, I think in if we try to put the Sandman story into the continuity and, and retcon and how this story makes sense, then uh, either there really was no problem and this world ending thing and the um, the reason behind it being Hitler and the spear that like the Hitler and the spear thing is actually just a smokescreen um, and otherwise – um, the heroes are, are 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 fooled into entering what is essentially a models and simulation environment, which is a good thing to do to test your war plan. So uh, kudos for that. Odin. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, or it's that Woden, Odin, Woden, Odin, uh, Odin somehow set up that Hitler would do this thing, which would then create, which wouldn't really cause any concern, but it would do a light show and stuff, which would, I don't know whether the, whether Hitler is imaginary or not in terms of the context of, uh, having this uh, doing, being able to do this thing, but no matter what, it seems at some point there is a light show and the heroes, uh, are, uh, fed via trickery from Odin, a false narrative that if they don't do something by entering this place to have this unending Ragnarok struggle, then the world ends. And that that actually is a trick. It's just a matter of like, was the trick even them thinking that they saw Hitler raise a spear or did, or is it that Hitler had a spear and like never actually did anything other than keep heroes at bay from coming near Berlin. And the, um, the whole image of like him raising it and maniacally laughing and stuff was part of the smokescreen fake trickery that Odin played out. Either way, um, we seem to have that Odin was the one who caused essentially a, I'm going to call it a pocket dimension, um, where Ragnarok could be fought, but only in again, models and simulation sense, um, which again, 
good way to test your war plan. So, um, and in among other people, I guess we, we have not mentioned until you just mentioned now that, uh, the golden age Sandman is part of the justice society of America. Uh, we did encounter Wesley Dodds briefly mentioned in the first issue of Sandman. Um, as they mentioned the crime fighter who in the absence of Sandman, Neil Gaiman wrote that in the absence of him, there was some knowledge that something was lost. And so one of the people who stood up to try to take the place was this guy who used a, gun that put you to sleep, um, wore a gas mask and then left sand in your eyes. Um, plus his sidekick, Sandy. And yeah, and someday I would love for us to actually go check out some of the golden age Sandman. I mean, properly golden age though. I know that of course, golden age Sandman was rebooted owing to the success of Neil Gaiman's Sandman and that there's you know, contemporary stuff. Uh, I, I, we could do a bit of both actually, I think would be super fun. Well, I like your explanation here, Brent of, of, how we can square this. It does lend a bit of tragic comedy, though, I think, to what's happened to the JSA here, where they feel like what they're doing is saving the world by fighting this battle forever and ever, but actually they're not. <laughs> like it's just an accident that they're they've fallen in into this, which is which is kind of heartbreaking. Yeah, well, particularly because we see in the course of the battle, and it probably changes each time slightly, many of them uh, suffer painful deaths. <laughs> At the hands of, you know, the opposing side of the invading Loki and the giants and the other people showing up at Ragnarok and, you know, Fenris, Wolf, the wolf and everything. Um, and like, that's terrible. They're having to repeatedly be, you know, forced to fight and then, you know, die in terrible ways only to relive it right away. It resets again and again and again. It's it's a this is a nightmare Twilight Zone episode, if ever I've seen one. Um, and they're having to experience this and those are people, those are not simulations. What they're fighting is a simulation. They're not actually fighting the real Fenris and the real like world serpent They're but they don't know that this is a hollow deck where the, the safeties are off. Um, and yet it comes back. Oh, that's perfect. It's exactly what's happened. They've gone into a holodeck program and, uh, or they are the holodeck program. Like they think they're real. And then they're at some point they're going to discover no, they're not. This is all an, an illusion and are perhaps going to have to deal with that. And in fact, you have said that they do, they do come back. And how, how does that work? Or I guess really my specific question is when they come back, does, does their coming back acknowledge this story? I don't know that it does acknowledge the story, but I, I, I'm aware they come back. I'm aware that I think, I think Dr. Fate and some other people are involved with finding a way to get them out because they don't need to be there, but I don't know if it actively acknowledges the story. It might though. Um, cause you know, this is all trying to keep things roughly in continuity. So I don't know how much it lays into, you know, well, Odin set the whole thing up versus a, no, no, we can just get them out. They don't have to keep fighting. And the, the, the creatures are trapped. I don't know if the creatures are trapped or the creatures were fake all along. Uh, it might be the creatures are trapped, which is less of a uh, terrible horror story and requires less of a, wait, what am I reading? Then, um, <laughs> then uh, you've been dying again and again and again for nothing. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's bring ourselves out of the specificity here, the, the details here, and uh, start really our kind of final bit of discussion here about this issue where we'll talk about, or well, yeah, I guess it is an issue, a one-shot issue. We'll talk about the cover, the title, we'll each pick a favorite panel. And then after all of that too, I think we can just really zoom out and talk about how this story worked for us, our, our reaction to it, our enjoyment of it. But let's start with the cover, 
first. And the, the cover shows the members of the Justice Society dead in a war-demolished Berlin. And this includes Batman and Superman and Wonder Woman. And then we have some floating heads above it of other JSA members, including Dr. Fate and the Spectre. And they are looking at this scene in, well, I guess I would describe this as horror and despair. And I think this is a fantastic cover, especially for selling issues off a spinner rack. But I especially love the, the 1980s-ness of it with the, uh, the emphasis on this being a special issue and that it's extra long and doesn't have any ads, which you, you did as a gimmick at the beginning of our show, Brent. It's just a great artifact as well as a good cover. I loved it. Yeah, it's great because it's got and <laughs> the expression of horror, particularly on Power Girl's face as she's looking down at, you know, we see our heroes lying dead in the field, you know, the, the rubble that is, we know Berlin, but you don't know looking at the cover. Um, and it's, it's great because you, you just see all of them. And interestingly enough, you see Dr. Fate looking down at Dr. Fate, um, which is, <laughs> I don't know if that was an error. Uh, I think there are some times uh, in the issue a couple times during the fight where um, particularly actually with, uh, for instance, Wesley Dodds, the Golden Age Sandman, where at one point uh, the dialogue makes it sound like it's Sandman talking. But if you look at the actual illustration and coloring, I'm like, I don't think that that's Sandman um, on that Gatling gun, but I could be wrong. Um, but uh, no, I really like it um, how just, you know, everyone it, it erases the story of, you know, what do you want to know? And particularly because it's the last days of Justice Society of America and some of the heroes clearly are Justice Society, but also you see Superman and Batman. Um, that is the bat signal, uh, symbol that Batman is wearing that is more associated with the golden um, age Batman than the more modern of the 1980s Batman. But you may not know that to a quick reader. So, and Superman Usually the best way to tell whether you're dealing with the golden age Superman or the modern day Superman at this time is, are his sideburns gray? <laughs> <laughs> um, and you can't tell in this picture. So, um, you know, something big has happened, you know, it's tragic, you know, it hasn't happened to all of them, but also like, these are some real powerful people to see on the ground and also some real powerful people reacting to it. Um, and then of course with Spectre, you can never tell what he thinks. He just looks kind of grim, which is his shtick. So I, I really like it. It grabs your attention. Yeah. It's actually kind of in contrast, I think to the title, which is not a bad title, right? The title is last days of the justice society of America. And that is exactly what it is, but I'm a little surprised that the issue wasn't called, you know, something a little more dramatic than that, right? Because, you know, Last Days might just be like, this is a special one-shot issue about the retirement party and how mediocre the cake was, you know, something <laughs> like that, right? But like, no, this is this is devastating. There's world-ending stuff here. There's the, you know, Ragnarok. So, you know, the title is good it, it, and, and it, you know, the issue does what it says on the box, but I was a little surprised that this wasn't punched up to be something like, you know, Justice Society of America, and you know Ragnarok or something like that. Yeah, it. Um, yeah, and apparently, um, uh, and in the volume you and I are reading this, and Glenn, which is the last days of the Justice Society of America, the trade, um, which includes a number of secret origins. There's also um, kind of an uh, an epigraph, or it's called an. Uh, Epigomini by Roy Thomas, the uh, editor writer of this, um, in which he says the working title of this was the end of the Just Society of America. Um, and so I think last days sounds uh, a more golden age and b uh, 
slightly more fun. Uh, not fun, fun, but you know what I mean? I like it. Um, so I like that, but it does stand in contrast to, you know, just society Ragnarok, uh, which is maybe what you'd call it, um, in the last 20 years. All right. Well, Brent, I'm going to give you first crack here about uh, favorite panel. What was your favorite panel of this issue? You know, there was really a lot of great panels that I loved a lot. I think the one, and there's page numbers on some pages, but not all, um, but it's the splash page that occurs in the tray that you and I are reading, Glenn, it's page 17. Um, but I don't know what page it is of the 68 of the comic. Um, but it is Hawkman. Uh, this is at the funeral and he, this is him going over the crisis and like, what it means and everything and, and the fact that they've lost folks, but he's explaining that um, it is not our world any longer, not really, however much we may wish to pretend that it were otherwise. For when Earth 1, Earth 2, and so many other Earths became one, we in turn became, in a very real sense, redundant. This Earth has other heroes, younger ones, many of whom bear the same powers, even the same names we do. True, its people remember even honor the Justice Society, yet it is the more youthful Justice League which has captured their hearts and minds, and the Justice Leaguers themselves are but a small fraction of this world's champions now. Some of these heroes are our contemporaries, but the vast majority are far younger, and their race is for the most part yet to run. So there's a lot of things I like about this. Um, there's things he's communicating in the dialogue and there's the actual image. So let me start with the dialogue. So he's laying out and encapsulating for the audience. Hey, remember the crisis happened. If you didn't know, this is kind of what happened. You kind of get the gist of it. But also then he's just discussing um, and a lot of the what Roy Thomas and others who have written Just Society over the years when they talk about Just Society, a lot of it is to contrast how it feels to grow older um, and to feel – you know, it, it's Hawkman says redundant, um, but to just feel out of place and to, on the one hand, perhaps be more wise and less rash and hasty, um, you know, is the way that older generations would look at it. But it's also just to, to, to know that it's not as much your day in the sun as it was other people. And that like, you know, the future fight or race in this case uh, is put as for other people, like you did your part and now you're done, whether you want to be or not, which is kind of really bittersweet. Um, and there's a lot kind of packed in there. Um, additionally, discussing the Justice League and how that's what it's called. And while the JSA is fondly remembered, the Justice League is really, you know, kind of where it's at. And it's not just the Justice League. There's these other folks. Well, there's a couple things going on there I want to talk about. The first is, I think this is Roy Thomas very much talking about the fact that he loves the Justice Society, but comics readers at this point, they don't want to read about the Justice Society. They want to read about the Justice League. They want to read, you know, with the modern heroes, um, Silver Age and, and beyond. Um, and they want to read about like, you know, the Teen Titans, uh, later the Titans. Um, and they want to read about the outsiders and we want to, and that's who we're seeing images of, which I'll get to the images in a minute. But, um, so in some ways, this is also the editor writer who's like our days passed. So are the days of the characters that I was able to, you know, get you to read comics about, I need to write about more modern characters. And I want to write about these characters that I remember growing up about, but I, and I like the new characters, but I really wish that people would equally still want to hear as much about JSA. And thankfully, 
you by picking up this fine last days of the JSA, you probably also are similarly, you know, feeling this bittersweet moment of like, you're reading a JSA comic. That's great. On the other hand, you're reading the final JSA comic. Now we, we know years later, not really, but yet at the time, it's just kind of like, this is, this is it. This is the climax. This is where your heroes end, which is, you know, as we've talked about in the plot, it's triumphant, but terrible. Like, <laughs> and that's just, that's a tough thing to, to deal with. Um, so that's kind of the wording. This is a great monologue. I mean, I, I poked a little bit of fun at it in the, the recap where this goes on for several pages of Hawkman explaining mm-hmm. all of this backstory, but it is, well, one, we need to know this and it is actually done fairly well as, you know, an example of this type of exposition, but it is also, as you're suggesting, Brent, I think fairly sad, fairly somber, fairly bittersweet, right? Where this is really, though it is in the voice of this character, this is really Thomas himself lamenting, lamenting the loss of interest in these characters. And that that definitely jumps off the page here. And the story that we get is this kind of fun love letter to the the golden age, I guess. And then visually we get the modern Justice League with, you know, the Batman and Superman as they they look when I started reading comics and as I know from like, you know, Super Friends cartoons and everything in the top right with the modern day Hawkman and Hawkwoman who uh, I think by this point in continuity, they're actually aliens from another planet um, who have come here. Um, and then we've got a lot of other heroes that are just fun throwouts. Uh, one of my favorites that just telephone tells you this is the 80s is on the right hand side of the page in the middle of the planet right over um, where um, – uh, well, actually, I can't tell because now I see a little landmass sticking out. So maybe it's supposed to be partially over France and Iberia. Uh, you have Black Canary, which with the wonderful 80s hair that she had in the 80s. And like usually you don't see her with this crazy hair with the uh, the headband. But this is the look that she had for a good chunk of the 80s, which was uh, – what's the word? Awful. Um, but it, there's just something that's so glamorous about it where she looks like she's in, intentionally like – influenced by the art of the day and like you know the music videos which were just coming out like this is what you have where you've got black canary updating her thing where instead of it's someone who's wearing like a you know corset and uh silk stockings and like having like a you know blonde wig to hide the fact she's not blonde instead you're just like well let's give her this haircut that essentially is a mullet in some ways right um <laughs> yeah, this was, uh, it was a dark time and, it's a, it's a thing. Um, but it's great. Cause then you've also got the teen Titans. Um, one of my favorite characters, Dick Grayson, who is the original Robin. He is at he's Nightwing, and it's where he's got the giant blue collar in the bottom right hand corner of the panel leading the Titans um, and Wonder Girl before she was Troya is uh, flowing just over the left hand side of his shoulder uh, in kind of the, the red, um, kind of one piece thing uh star sapphire wearing a uh, two little clothing as she usually does um but then there's also just some fun things particularly in the left hand co- bottom corner where he mentions some of these heroes are you know uh actually are contemporaries they still exist and you've got there you know in the middle of the bottom page you've got billy batson you've got shazam aka captain marvel um he is now because of there was a lengthy copyright dispute, blah, 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 blah. DC's not supposed to call him Captain Marvel anymore. At this time, he's still Captain Marvel, but now he's known as Shazam. Um, but he's a character who 
DC eventually, you know, got the IP for, and, you know, he predates many of the justice society members in terms of, you know, when he actually was first published. Um, and then we've got uncle Sam as a character and we've got plastic man there with the great glasses on and stuff. So it's, it's, it's fun to see a nice collection of things from DC continuity and particularly characters that harken back to my memories of when I first was reading, you know, in the late eighties, picking up teen Titans comics, particularly I really got into, um, and, and justice league stuff. So it's great to see all that. Um, but then with this like really heavy um, speech that Hawkman is giving, which does go on for many, many pages. Um, and I kind of I was getting a little sick of it, frankly, by this point. But then I got to this <laughs> panel and I got to this panel. I'm like, oh, I'm now back on board. Um, and he's finally getting to where he needs to go, which is the end of his speech. So um, good end. Yeah. And this panel, I mean, this would make an amazing poster, right? Like if, you know, the, the alternate reality that we envisioned in high school in which the internet never happened and we actually just run a comic book shop uh, mm-hmm. and also that sells CDs. That was kind of our, our dream. Like this is a panel that we would want as a poster in that shop. And I, I want to believe that that shop does exist in an alternate universe. And in fact, this poster or this panel is hanging up in that shop as a poster. It's, uh, it's fantastic. And I also love Brent just generally that, you know, you went for the densest, 1980s comic book <laughs> page that was in this 1980s comic book issue. And I went completely the other route with my favorite panel. For me, I love Norse mythology. And so what I loved about this issue was seeing elements of Ragnarok depicted here. And my favorite panel then is right at the beginning on page 43 or 43, you know, as it is in this volume that we have. I don't know what page it is in the issue, but uh, at the bottom. And this then is really just showing us the Norse mythology stuff, none of the superhero stuff, but it is the arrival of the ship Naglar carrying, well, all of the baddies that our heroes are going to have to fight. For me, this is just epic. The ship itself looks menacing. And I loved this, but I also just love the parallel where you picked all the heroes and I picked all the baddies. <laughs> yeah. It's a, this was a runner up for me. I think um, this panel, it's really great one. Um, it's fun to see, you know, Viking long ship coming in with a bunch of purple clad, you know, cause I'm a big fan of the color. I'm wearing purple as we're recording now, which Glenn can see and no one else can, but listener now you know um but it's it's fun to see with you know the wolf and the watchdog and then the giant kind of lazily walking behind them with a flaming sword and um yeah there's there's a lot that's really great about that and just like the majesty um uh, which i do have to we should get back to the panel in a minute but i do have to ask as it relates to this given that we were told basically on page i don't know six what the soundtrack of this was were you listening to wagner the whole time that you were reading this glenn and at what point like what was happening at the point when you got to this panel when that occurred oh wow well you so yes the wagner is invoked here this is part of hitler's nonsensical beliefs. I mean, this is documented, right? That, that, that Hitler and not only Hitler, but like many people believe that there was, unfortunately Hitler was one of them. (laughs) Yes. I mean, I think that has some, that sums up the controversy, the controversial role of Wagner in classical music uh, history, but also classical music appreciation and uh, fandom as it exists today. But uh, many people, Hitler was just one of them believed that there potentially was actually something mystical 
magical, numinous about music in general, right? That the uh, sound vibrations from music could have some kind of numinous power in the world beyond simply entertaining our ears, right? And, and, and moving us to emotions and so on. And part of that belief system was that uh, Wagner's music uh, would actually allow us to access the world of ancient Germanic society, ancient Germanic culture in some way. Uh, maybe I ought to back up just a little bit to say, hey, Wagner, uh, Richard, Richard Wagner, opera composer of the, the mid and late 19th century, wrote uh, operas about uh, Arthurian legend from the Middle Ages, wrote operas about other medieval literature or in well, other elements of the medieval world as it exists in medieval literature, but then most famously wrote this massive uh, multi-opera cycle called The Ring Cycle, which is setting one element of ancient Germanic uh, religion, uh, what we often call Norse mythology, to music and turning it into an opera, to a dramatic uh, you know, musical is what we would call it today, I suppose. And the last installment of this four opera series is called Gotterdammerung, which means death of the gods. And so, yeah, that's what I put on uh, while I was reading this. But the ring cycle itself is is something like, I mean, it's, gosh, it's like 14 hours long, maybe depending on the recording that you have. Gotterdammerung is a three and a half hour opera. It does not take three and a half hours to read this issue. Uh, it doesn't take three and a half hours even to read it four times like I did. So I did not get to the whole thing, but I don't remember exactly what was uh, what was happening as I got to, got to that page. But uh, at least the first time, it wasn't suitably epic because we we're still just kind of warming up to the to the story there. But no, definitely uh you know just on page yeah what four or five of this issue the the writer tells me what the soundtrack ought to be and I always appreciate that. I will say too Brent that that was a big part of my enjoyment of this issue as an excuse to really jam out to the ring cycle. But uh look this is a bonkers story. It's kind of a bonkers idea, even as it's presented in The Sandman. But then getting into this, it was even more bonkers than I expected. It was a lot more single combat than I thought it was going to be. I mean, a lot more of who who would win in a fight than I had anticipated. Uh, but I, I still really enjoyed this uh, this issue a lot. I, I, I wonder if, if you did, Brent. Did you, did you enjoy this? Are you glad that we spent some time on this? No, I'm really glad. I had not read this before. I'd read other JSA stories, but I had not ever read this one. Um, I thought I had, but um, no, I definitely had not. Um, there was a lot of stuff I loved about it. Um, as, as I mentioned in the panel that I chose, a lot of it is just memories of other things. Um, but I also do like, as I get older, I find more appreciation for when writers like Roy Thomas are trying to talk about what it feels like to, to get older. Um, and I did want to mention a uh, shout out to Roy Thomas. I don't know, you know, how familiar you were with him. I had, I'm bad when it comes to keeping track of who was involved with what at some point and with comic characters that are owned by corporations, largely you're doing work for hire. Sometimes it's hard to keep track unless you've got stuff in your contract, you know, like Neil Gaiman where you, you do well, but among other things, Roy Thomas co-created, I'm just gonna give this list from Wikipedia, uh, Wolverine vision, Doc Sampson, Carol Danvers, Captain Marvel, uh, Luke Cage, Iron Fist, Ultron, Yellow Jacket, The Defenders, Man Thing, Red Sonia, Roy Thomas, co-creator, Red Sonia, uh, Adam Warlock, Morbius, Ghost Rider, Squadron Supreme, Invaders, The Black Knight, Nighthawk, Havoc, Banshee, Sunfire, 
Thundra, uh, Archon, Killraven, which is a dumb name, but whatever, Marvel villains, uh, Wendell Vaughn, Red Wolf, Red Guardian, uh, Damian Hellstrom, Brother Voodoo, and Valkyrie. Uh, he was inducted in Will Eisner Comic Book Hall of Fame in 2011, but uh, did a lot of work in the pulps. He also was responsible when he worked over at Marvel um, uh, or uh, for bringing Conan the Barbarian into Marvel and doing a bunch of Conan stories um, in Marvel continuity, which were included new Conan stories, not just um, retellings of um other ones. So it added to that. So, um, just did a lot of stuff. Um, in addition to doing DC comics, all-star squadron, we told stories about the JSA and then, um, their, their progeny. Um, so just really great stuff. So anyways, I, I really enjoyed, um, thinking about as I get to be an older man, thinking about, uh, uh, thinking about like what that means, but the, uh, giving me the soundtrack of the Wagner was great. Yeah, and I think for for all of that, I'm I'm super glad also to have read this issue because I mean you're still going to have to put on your comics historian hat and explain everything to me as we encountered in the Sandman. But this was really great for me to just get some exposure to the, really what is the comic book universe, the DC universe background or backdrop to the Sandman story. This has really brought a lot of that to life for me. So I'm glad we took this detour, and I will be excited to take more detours uh, as they as they come up, more detours into whatever they are, 1980s DC comics or wherever we might go. I'll be excited for that. And I think that is a good note on which to bring this episode to a close. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Helt. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. And if you are eager right now for more of us talking about 1980s DC Comics, please join us on Patreon to gain access to our bonus series on Alan Moore's Swamp Thing. Brent brought that up earlier in the show. We will be back here later this month with an extra episode that was commissioned by one of our Patreon supporters. This is on Gaiman's well, really classic story, but also masterpiece short story, Snow Glass Apples, a retelling of Snow White. And then next month, we'll be back with our regularly scheduled episode on the Father Brown mystery story, The Flying Stars, written by Fiddler's Green, or, you know, as he's known here in the waking world, G.K. Chesterton. And until next time, pleasant dreams. <laughs>